0: You're listening to the Golden West Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I explore the best in food and wine on the West Coast, including California, Oregon, and Washington. We're about to go on a journey, exploring the people and stories behind the vineyards, farms, and kitchens. So grab a drink, fire up your grill, pull up a seat to the table, and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they're known for single origin coffees, and they're committed to long term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I always start my day off with a cup or two. I make it by hand with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make yours. You can use a pour over, maybe use a Chemex, maybe you just use a basic Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You don't want those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find in the grocery store, and I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our promo code, Golden West. You'll get $5 off your first purchase. Do it now while you're thinking about it, and your coffee will show up at your doorstep as soon as you know it. Today in the show, we have Kathy Corrison. Kathy is a winemaker, entrepreneur, and consultant. Her winemaking journey began nearly 45 years ago when she took a wine appreciation course at Pomona College on a whim, and she fell in love with wine. She's worked with many wineries over the years and holds a master's degree in enology from UC Davis. She's currently the winemaker and founding partner at Corison in the Napa Valley. Enjoy my conversation with Kathy. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, it's great having you here. So I think the first thing to do before we dive into all the wine is, you know, winemaking is very personal and it's a lot of not only the vineyard, but a lot of what the winemaker is doing and the decisions, as you know so well. So let's get into a little of your background. And you've told your story, I know, a few times on a couple other different podcasts, but briefly kind of leading up to getting your start in wine.
1: Well, I suppose it, it started when I was 19 years old at Pomona College, stu- minding my own business, studying biology. And on a complete whim, I took a wine appreciation, wine appreciation class, non-credit, just, just for interest sake. And wine grabbed me by the neck and ran with me, and I've never looked back. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's wonderful. I, I think I fell in love for the, all the usual reasons. It's delicious, and you share it with friends and family, but layered in on top of that. As a biologist, it's a whole series of living systems that conspire to what is alchemy in the glass.
0: Yeah, and during that class, you learned about different wine growing regions. I'm assuming. Were there any regions that really caught your attention, and or did you do any kind of wine tasting after that, or during while the class was going on? I know it was like a college course, but
1: well, and it was in Claremont, California, way almost fifty years ago, and so many of the wine regions that are so well known today didn't even exist, frankly. The professor that taught the course was john hager he's still an important wine writer today and he was a francophilic anglo chinese professor at pomona college so um it was basically a a, a class in french
0: wines right okay and um you know i've heard back then even with bordeaux and various regions that the quality even over in france wasn't where it is now is that true
1: well, well, I would say the highs were just as high, but they were, they weren't as consistent. We've all learned a lot about technical grape growing and winemaking. And that's true of the folks in France as well.
0: Yeah, and so I think a good place to start out from here is UC Davis and um you know getting your master's degree there. What was that uh, like? And, you know, at the time you were at Sterling Vineyards in the tasting room, I was reading. So what was that like about doing the uh, commute or like, during that time when you were coming up and really learning the technical aspects of wine?
1: Well, that was my year between um, graduating from Pomona. I arrived here in the Napa Valley two days later. With wow. a vague notion that I wanted to make world-class wine. I'm not sure what that, I knew what that meant. But um, I arrived here and during that year intervening, I cleaned up all the chemistry that I had managed to avoid and started to take the wine classes over at Davis all the while I was working half-time over here in the Napa Valley. So that was the year in between. That's when I was at Sterling in
0: the tasting room. Got it, okay, and then after that you had an internship at freemark Abbey
1: as um, i was as I left Davis in nineteen seventy eight I did with my master's degree I did an internship at Fremark Abbey, not the harvest of nineteen seventy eight
0: Wow. And what was Napa like during that time? Um, I imagine, you know, it still has a kind of a small town or small community feel in many ways, even though with all the tourism and all these high-end restaurants and everything. But what was it like back then in 1978?
1: It well, 75 is when I arrived and it was very it was poor. It's hard to imagine today. It was rural and poor and just beginning to scratch its way out of Prohibition, which had ended in 1933, but had completely wiped out the wine industry worldwide, really. And then there are a couple of world wars and a depression in there, too. So um, Napa Valley was just emerging to become what it is today. I got here in June of 1975. The Paris tasting was in 1976, and that catapulted us onto the world stage um, in a way that's hard to imagine and I feel like I've been hanging on for dear life ever since
0: it's yeah, been
1: really you, very exciting
0: yeah and you mentioned uh growing up in uh in the Claremont area or kind of riverside area is that right
1: yeah it's only half hour away
0: yeah, yeah when I think about Claremont I think about like citrus and uh mm-hmm. is it orange trees and things like that did you um did you have any, I mean, your interest really wasn't in farming kind of of what kind of grabbed you with wine, but uh, did you have any parallels there with growing up out in uh, kind of all the citrus or at least going to college in those areas?
1: Well, it was beautiful and it, it, it was a long way from Los Angeles. So it, a little rural in that there were still lots and lots of orange groves, but my family was not involved in, I knew families that were, but my father was a lawyer.
0: Right. Interesting. So after, after Freemark Abbey uh, talk about um, Chapelet and kind of all through the 1980s and what, what that was like.
1: Well, as I left Freemark Abbey, I actually became the winemaker at a little tiny winery on Spring Mountain called Everdun, which is long defunct. Um, it later became Terra Valentine. Um So I did that for two years, and then I had wines to show, and sort of like a portfolio. And Don Chapelet hired me to be the winemaker at Chapelet, and I made the wine there for all the 80s, 1980s. Yeah,
0: and and during the 80s, do you think that was a transition during that time to when the wines became kind of more big and bold and more extracted, obviously with Parker's influence he kind of started with the 82 bordeaux vintage that he called and then i think of him more being in the early 90s but when do you think that sh- that shift or transition started taking place in the valley
1: it started in the late 80s and
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then gathered steam in the 1990s and was going full force in the aughts. um but it's important to remember that that there's fashion in wine just like anything else and fashion comes and fashion goes And that just was a style that became fashionable.
0: Yeah. Do you have any of those bottles from the early 80s in your, I don't know, wine portfolio or uh, like a cellar? I think of those bottles, some of those brands where you you can't get that type of wine. (laughs) Maybe you're getting like a big, more full-bodied wine. But those, I think of those as being like really prized bottles from that kind of. Uh, well, time frame
1: it goes way back farther. You know, Napa Valley mm-hmm. has been famous for Cabernet-based wines since the late 19th century. There were wines winning expositions in Europe from Napa Valley that far back. So there's really a long tradition of um, age-worthy, world-class Cabernet Sauvignon. And I have had the opportunity to taste wines from as far back as the 50s, 60s, and I got here in the 70s, and so I I I tasted a lot of those wines. They were built a lot like my wines are, but we didn't know as much about grape growing in those days. Grape growing was basically two operations. It was pruning and picking. So the crops were bigger. They were not doing the uh, canopy management that we've learned to do, and um, there was very little intervention in the vineyard and that's really where all the increase in quality has come from in my opinion. So yeah. so in a great vintage just like in Bordeaux in a great vintage the wines were great but there was less consistency.
0: Yeah, and a cliche is that great wine is made in the vineyard. Let's talk a little about you know your wines and your style. So let's just get into how it came to be that you Started coursing? Well,
1: it was pretty simple. I was making the wine at Chapelet in the 80s and loving it up there. Some of the best vineyards in the world, Uh, already quite famous for Cabernet before I got there. And um, it was just a delight to work there, uh, both because the grapes were terrific and Don Chapelet was wonderful. But there was a wine inside of me that needed to get out, and it was a wine that was not made from mountain fruit. Um, Cabernet Sauvignon grown in the mountains here in the Napa Valley are built very differently than wines that grow down on the benchland. The flavors are different. The structure is different. This wine inside of me was, I think, hailed back a little bit to my my original um, introduction to wine at that wine appreciation class where it was French wines from back in the day. And the wines were very elegant and pretty. And so this this Cabernet in my head was powerful because Cabernet is going to be powerful no matter what you do, but it was also elegant. And those sound like opposites, but they can be in the same gla- glass at the same time. It's sort of yin and yang. So that's what I've been chasing my whole life. And to, to make this wine that was in my head, I knew I needed to go down to what in those days was called the Rutherford Bench. Um, it's that was before there were sub-AVAs, sub-Appalachians. So it was just that basically it was the alluvial fans coming out of the western hills between Oakville and St. Helena. And th- I prized the grapes from there for many things. One of them is tannins that come out of the vineyard feeling like velvet because the seeds lignify nice and early, turn woody. Um, the wines are, have good, snappy, natural acidity, and they are also very complex, and they have lots of the, the bright and pretty red and blue end of the Cabernet spectrum, flavor spectrum, which later turns into a beautiful, um, floral perfume with time in the bottle. So I started buying grapes and, and barrels instead of cars and houses as a, Pretty young adult. I'm I'm about to do my 34th harvest of Coruscant.
0: Wow. And talk a little about the picking decision, because when I talk to winemakers, they often say it's probably the most important decision they make. And after that, there's some things you, you can do in the cellar, but that's the one thing you can't take back.
1: Well, first of all, winemaking is simple. Great grapes make great wine, period. And I can't make the wine any better than the grapes that come in the door. So almost, I would say over 80% of my my attention is spent out there and is all season. It's not just when I pick it, it's how it's grown all year, especially um, after bud break when we do a lot of manipulation out there with a canopy to get the right amount of air and light into the fruit and balance between the fruiting part, of the vine and the growing part of the vine, that's that's basically what we're out there doing. And if all is well and the and Mother Nature is kind, um, my picking decision, I I never make wine unless I do the sampling myself, because I'm looking at about twenty different things. Among them are the status of the vine, because the vine needs to be working to be ripening fruit if you're if it gets really hot and the vines are unhappy and they lose their leaves they'll shrivel up to any old sugar you want but that's not ripeness so i yeah. started sampling last week i expect i'll probably start picking around the 1st of september
0: Okay, yeah, I was reading something where people, some people, had joked that um, you're out picking and they should go out sampling for the first time.
1: Well, that that (laughs) used that used to be the the joke, but uh, now it's now thankfully for me because I love wine first and foremost. Thankfully, there is a move back toward wines that are um, what I consider more balanced. So yeah. people are yeah, picking you, earlier and earlier. I still pick weeks before most.
0: Yeah. You know, a lot of people have seen the Psalm film or they've um, seen or read different things along the way. we had the In Pursuit of Balance group. And we've had um, this focus on more, you know, natural wine is probably a bad term, but low, low intervention or mm-hmm. you have these different, um, you know, s- new startup wine wines and wineries and winemakers, you know, picking early, but also, um, using different varietals that are lesser known Carignan, on mm-hmm. I mean, one that comes to mind is dirty and rowdy who, you yeah. know, you might, you probably have some stories about Hardy Wallace who ma- yeah. helped, uh, manage he, your tasting room. <laughs>
1: yeah. He worked in our tasting room for, for a couple of years. I think he's wonderful. Um, and and he and so many other young winemakers are bringing a whole breath of fresh air in. Not only are styles moving back toward um, more balance, but there's, there's so much more diversity in here in Napa Valley, but all over California. And so it's very exciting to see um, so many young winemakers doing really interesting things in the world and I'm grateful as a wine lover for it.
0: Yeah. And you've talked here about 80% is in the vineyard. In the past, I've heard you on other, a couple of other podcasts and interviews talking about farming organic and how there's no reason kind of not to do that. Um, and whether it's barn owl boxes or other things, touch on that a little bit and how that's been your philosophy kind of from the start, perhaps.
1: Well, we have farmed Kronos Vineyard, that's the estate vineyard around the winery, organically for over a quarter century, um, way before it was fashionable. And I do it for many reasons. I do it because we're really farming the soils out there. If the soils are wildly alive, then the vines are happy. Um, All the things they need are made available to them. Um, I also just don't want to make something we consume with with grapes that have had anything sprayed out there it's a i'm the same way in my home i i buy organic food and eat you know whole foods so um the one the vineyard's really just the same
0: yeah and let's get into the vineyard so and the, the different vineyards here um whoever there's probably people out there who are on the email list who get the newsletter which i do and i just saw um you know replanting the, a couple of acres in the kronos vineyard right in front of the winery and also for people who have driven by they can see what's happening which is also really cool talk a little about that and what's going on on the property
1: well the planting is very exciting to me because it after all these years, I have ne- had never planted a vineyard before. So this is very, very um, exciting to me just on a personal level. What had happened is the front two acres of Kronos Vineyard had, had been planted a long time ago, probably well over 40 years ago, to AXR1 rootstock, which turned out to be insufficiently Uh, resistant to phylloxera and so it had been slowly dying for decades out there we couldn't afford to do anything about it until recently so finally a couple years ago pulled it out after harvest and I've decided to go back in on the same rootstock and scion that we use in the old block behind the winery which was planted in 1971 it's going to be 50 years old next year it's on St. George rootstock, and that's why it's still happy and healthy, because St. George is completely resistant to phylloxera. And it's also on clone 2 Cabernet Sauvignon, which was planted widely until the early 1970s, but later was supplanted by other clones that were more productive. So we've decided to go in with those same clones. Both St. George and clone 2 Cabernet Promote scraggly clusters of little tiny berries which of course aren't very good for the yield or for the bottom line but they make amazing wine so my hope is that right out of the shoot those new vines out there will make really exciting wine we'll see
0: yeah and i'm looking here is this a clone two cabernet yes Okay. Talk a little, maybe you could touch this a little bit on clones for people who don't know. I often see a clone 337 or you know, certain ones that seem to pop up a lot, but maybe you could touch on that just very briefly.
1: Clones represent um, genetic variability that doesn't reach the level of species. So it's still vitis vinifera, but over time there are Mutations out there. That's how you would get all the all the different flavors, all the different varieties. And then within the varieties, there can be if a variety has been around long enough, there can have been further um, diversification genetically. So that different clones of Cabernet Sauvignon are so closely related that they're Cabernet Sauvignon, but they're but they're different. They can vary in in berry size, cluster morphology, um, many different things. So that's one of the things we have a choice when we plant a vineyard. We, We choose a rootstock because we need to be resistant to phylloxera, but then we can also choose what clone of a variety we put on top
0: yeah that's that's great insight for people who don't fully understand that but they they probably want to dig into that a little bit more um let's next go to sunbasket which is a really special uh little site here
1: yeah i sunbasket is very close to my heart i have sourced that vineyard for over 30 years i bought in other words i bought the grapes for decades. And originally I shared it with Schaefer Vineyard. Um, They took half the Cabernet and I took half the Cabernet. And then there's a little tiny bit of Cabernet Franc that they would take. Many years ago they became all estate. And at that point I took over the whole vineyard. Um, So now I make that little, little tiny bit of Cabernet Franc and the entire vineyard. And then miraculously five years ago, we purchased the vineyard. So it, we now own it, have complete control over it, and in fact, uh, vineyard designate a, a, a little bit just so it can come out and play. It's still an important component of the chorus in Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon, but it's always been one of my favorite vineyards. So I love being able to put a little bit in the bottle and um, let it sing.
0: Yeah. And for people who've had that and I've tried it, it's a delicious and amazing wine. Let's get into a little bit of the winemaking and some of the decisions that you make in the cellar. So the one thing is the lack of the blending and just you know letting the varietal speak for itself. Talk a little about that and you, you know, why you make decisions and why you don't during that, that process in the cellar.
1: My cabernets are one hundred percent cabernets because of where I am. I believe that here on the Rutherford Bench, the alluvial fans against the hills on the eastern excuse me western side of the valley, Cabernet Sauvignon can do anything the other varieties that are usually blended with it can do better every year. Uh, many people taste my wines and think there must be Cabernet Franc because it's so. Um, has such a, a beautiful floral perfume, often that's associated with Franc, but in this case, that's part of what Cabernet Sauvignon can do. So um, I guess I'm just a Cabernet Chauvinist, Cabernet Sauvignon so- Chauvinist, um, and it's it's I I've, I believe it's better here in this little corner of the world. Of course, there are other places in the world where those other varieties, Merlot, Cabernet Franc. Um, Malbec all make beautiful standalone or blending wines Um, it, but on different soils and different climates.
0: Yeah. And talk a little about your view on Oak and how it's used in the cellar and and how you use uh, Oak. Well, I use
1: a hundred percent French Oak. I have a strong preference for the flavors. I think they dovetail beautifully with Cabernet Sauvignon flavors. Um, I use 50% new each year, and I source several different Coopers, which is a small but important source of complexity in the wine. I could not make the wines I make without an infusion of new oak barrels every year, but I don't want you to taste it. I want it to be so integrated with the fruit that you don't, you can't pick oak out.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. And when I've tried your wines, I definitely get that. Where you said with Cabernet Sauvignon, the oak really blends nicely, and you, you get those flavors, but it's not overpowering and doesn't kind of hit you over the head with. You know, I've heard that from. Some people say where if you're using a bad quality fruit or something like that, you can cover it up and mask it with oak or do different things like that. Um, That's the which, last
1: thing I want to do. These are great yeah. grapes and they have every reason to make great wine. So... um yeah. yeah, and
0: we're going to get into a couple other brands that you have, uh, Helios and Corazon. Um, but first here, I'm just looking at the website, and we'll have a link where people can purchase these beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon. So the Chronos Vineyard that we talked about, the Sun Basket Vineyard, and then the uh, the Corazon Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, talk a little about just the Corazon uh, Cabernet there.
1: Well, you know I never i I never think about or talk about the Napa Valley Cabernet as being a second sister to our vineyard designated wines. um mm-hmm. It's the wine that I established the label with thirty four years ago, and it's sourced from three great vineyards here on the bench between Rutherford and St Lena so um I don't own those vineyards, so I don't vineyard designate them but year in and year out it makes beautiful wine. Um, and so I don't blend different varieties, but I do blend different vineyards. And every vineyard is a little bit different. Um, the soils are slightly different. It might have different rootstocks. It might have different clone of Cabernet. It might have different training and trellising, um, a different farm, uh, vineyard manager. So each each block is unique. And I keep each lot separate for its first year in the cellar, so I'm just about to blend the 2019 before harvest, before the grapes come in. So they'll spend a year, you know, as themselves, and then then they'll be blended to to spend the second year in the barrel, assembled.
0: Nice. And I'm looking on the website here, and you have uh, years going back, you know, vintages all the way to 1989. I'm seeing, you know. All through the '90s, '92, '93, talk a little about the ageability of your wines, and maybe the the sweet spot, or not so much the sweet spot, but just you know, tasting wine, your wines going back to, gosh, you know, the late '80s all the way to now, and 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 your views on that.
1: Well, I went into this knowing that these wines would be very long-lived because, like I mentioned, um, this little corner of the world has been famous for Cabernet for well over a 100 years. So there's a long history of making beautiful, age-worthy Cabernet Sauvignon on, on the Rutherford Bench. And it was my intention to let the vineyard speak, and part of that for me is to make them in a way, grow them, and make them in a way that would let them have a long, interesting life. So I always said that the wines would be twenty or thirty year wines. Now the first vintages, the 1987 and through 1989, they're crossing the the thirty year mark, and they're still still quite lively. So I don't really know how long live they are, um, because I expected them to age well. I've always kept really good libraries, and that's why. And we re release them when they're in a pretty spot. To, but mostly to restaurants and also to our club, and so that's why you'll see some older wines available on the website because um, we've. That's always been part of our our um, plan.
0: Yeah, and those are when you're talking about a wine over thirty years old or just about. Um, and not there's a lot of people. There'll be some people listening who are. Uh, you know, well geared and uh, their palate is, uh, you know, they've tasted a lot of those and there'll be, I know a lot of people listening to this too, who uh, that's something that they can't wait to taste or in the future uh, they want to taste. Um, And so, you know, be sure to go to the website and you can check out the different years that are available and start reading the different notes and things. It's really fun to dive into that.
1: Great age-worthy red wine grown anywhere in the world is you you don't age it for some magical moment. Sometimes wine writers would believe, lead you to believe that. But in, in fact, they're, they're like an interesting person. They're interesting throughout their entire life. They're interesting when they're young and fruit driven and you would serve them with more assertive foods. And then they go through ups and downs through a long, interesting life, just like an interesting person. So um, it's it's just, they're alive. It's really fun to watch them.
0: Yeah. And lastly, let's touch on Helios and Corazon, the other two um, brands here. So with the Helios, you have the Cab Franc and then also a Syrah.
1: Yeah. Those are two labels that were designed by my husband and they're for other than Cabernet Sauvignon. Even my letterhead says Corazon, Napa Valley, Cabernet Sauvignon. But I do goof around with a few other things. We make a totally dry Alsatian inspired Gewürztraminer from Anderson Valley, of all things. Only 150 cases. It's totally dry and fabulous with food, but it's not Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's under a different label, the Corazon label. And um, some years I'll make a little bit of a totally dry um, Sagné Cabernet Sauvignon Rosé. That also goes under the Corazon label. The Helios label is for Red wines other than Cabernet Sauvignon. So now that we're vineyard designating the Cabernet Franc, that's actually the Helios St. Helena Sunbasket Vineyard Cabernet Franc. So it's not the the chorus and label.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to have the link here so people can go... And uh, pick up these wines maybe even go back and listen to the episode while you're sipping on one and the weather has been so hot so both the Gewürztraminer, uh and the the rosé here look amazing um and you on the website here it says the uh it cries out for food like you said so it's this is a wine that you could pair with so many things closing out i always ask guests just let's have a little fun and um what, what have you been drinking lately? The weather's been hot, I know. Any food and wine pairings that, you, uh, th- that you've that you been enjoying lately and anything like that?
1: Well, we can finally get back to our farmer's market. We're so grateful. So every Friday,
0: yeah.
1: um, there's a wonderful fishmonger that comes over from uh, Sonoma County and brings in Alaskan salmon that I don't think has been off the boat for more than 24 hours. And it's just incredible. Wow. So, um That's wonderful with snappy aromatic whites, um, especially. Oh, my favorites are the wines Austrian Rieslings, uh, dry Rieslings from the Mosel. Um, And then I've been on a really big um, Barolo and Barbaresco Jag for quite a while, Nebbiolo from the north of Italy. And those are lighter wines that, if served at proper Cellar temperature are really quite refreshing. So those, those keep me, keep me
0: fueled. Yeah. And that just reminds me in the last note here is how do you like your wines as far as temperature and how do you recommend for other people to go enjoy them? Because you mentioned the Nebbiolo there and that's with the, with the lighter reds, you can chill them a little bit more, or at least for me, that's what I kind of like and maybe let them warm up as I'm drinking my meal. But how do you personally like to do it or and advise people?
1: Well, it's important to remember that when the wine industry talks about cellar temperature, they are not talking room temperature. They're talking old English castle temperature. <laughs> so yeah. that's really important. Um So even reds, when it gets warm, if we keep our houses at 68 to 70 degrees, that's too warm. The wines need to be down 55 to 60 degrees is cellar temperature. So Um, that can be done with a cellar or it can be done by popping it in the refrigerator for 20 minutes, half hour before you open it. It's really not chilling it; it's just getting it to proper cellar temperature. Um, And this time of year, sometimes I'll get them a little colder just because we're eating out on the porch and it's probably in the eighties and um, it just keeps the wine at the right temperature a little longer, but it is important. If you, if, if you ever pay attention to that You'll see that a wine, as a, a, a red wine especially, as it gets warmer and warmer, often will change character, and it won't be as as integrated and as um, smooth and soft. It'll it'll start to get edgy when it gets
0: too warm. Yeah, and and along with that is decanting. And your, mm. what are your views with that?
1: Okay, decanting. The only time I personally decant is when our wines are over 10 years old. They're minimally processed in the cellar, so they throw a sediment over time. So after 10 years, there's usually some sediment. And so we'll stand it up for a day or two and then decant it over over a candle or these days over a, a, the flashlight on your on your cell phone. And you just leave the sediment in the bottle and pour the clear wine off the top. That way the person that gets the last pour doesn't get the sediment in their glass. The sediment won't hurt you, but it's interesting to decant a wine and then taste the sediment. It's it's, it's different. And so it's, it's better to get the wine away from it, both uh, from a flavor standpoint and a, just a visual standpoint. You don't really want to see the sediment. Um, other people will decant wine for... For air, and indeed, if you decant a wine, it gives it air, um, and that the wine interacts with the air and evolves over time. That's what aging is, and that's what the evolution in your glass is—is is interaction with oxygen. Um, I don't want someone to decide that a wine should have been decanted for a half hour or an hour, because I want to see what the wine does over that time. So I would much rather watch it evolve in my glass. The only time I would decant a wine for air would be if I were to have a, a dinner party with people that weren't really wine wine people and I just wanted the wine to show as well as it could and I knew it needed a half hour to be at its best. Um, then I might do it. But you know in my world, we're all paying attention to the wine. So I, we, we don't decant wines for air.
0: Kathy, this has been great. We're going to have a link. People can go to the website and purchase some wine. Also, I recommend sign up for the email list. I'm on it. And with email lists nowadays, you, you can get a lot of superfluous content. But the emails that I'm getting from and have been top-notch and just really educational, I'd say, and producing some great content. So we'll have all the links there. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. If you like the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can support the show by subscribing to our email newsletter for just five bucks a month. Find it on our website at goldenwestpodcast.com. In it, you'll find unique bottles from both popular and undiscovered winemaking talent, among other things. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at Golden Or you can email us at GoldenWestpodcast at gmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and may or may not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or any other advice. Please eat and drink responsibly and thanks for listening.